Section 11 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part 3. Chapter 9. Political Prisoners. Finding that a suffrage committee in the House and a report in the Senate had not silenced our banners, the administration cast about for another plan by which to stop the picketing. This time they turned desperately to longer terms of imprisonment. They were indeed hard-pressed when they could choose such a cruel and stupid course. Our answer to this policy was more women on the picket line on the outside and a protest on the inside of prison. We decided, in the face of extended imprisonment, to demand to be treated as political prisoners. We felt that, as a matter of principle, this was the dignified and self-respecting thing to do, since we had offended politically, not criminally. We believe further that a determined, organized effort to make clear to a wider public the political nature of the offense would intensify the administration's embarrassment and so accelerate their final surrender. It fell to Lucy Burns, vice-chairman of the organization, to be the leader of the new protest. Miss Burns is in appearance the very symbol of woman in revolt. Her abundant and glorious red hair burns and is not consumed, a flaming torch. Her body is strong and vital. It is said that Lucy Stone had the voice of the pioneers. Lucy Burns, without doubt, possessed the voice of the modern suffrage movement. Musical, appealing, persuading, she could move the most resistant person. Her talent as an orator is of the kind that makes for instant intimacy with her audience. Her emotional quality is so powerful that her intellectual capacity, which is quite as great, is not always at once perceived. I find myself wanting to talk about her as a human being rather than as a leader of women. Perhaps it is because she has such winning, lovable qualities— it was always difficult for her to give all of her energy and power to a movement. She yearned to play, to read, to study, to be luxuriously indolent, to revel in the companionship of her family, to which she is ardently devoted, to do any one of a hundred things more pleasant than trying to reason with a politician or an unawakened member of her own sex. But for these latter labors she had a most gentle and persuasive genius, and she would not shrink from hours of close argument to convince a person intellectually and emotionally. Unlike Miss Paul, however, her force is not non-resistant. Once in the combat, she takes delight in it. She is by nature a rebel. She is an ideal leader for the stormy and courageous attack, reckless and yet never to the point of unwisdom. From the time Miss Burns and Miss Paul met for the first time in Cannon Row Police Station, London, they have been constant co-workers in suffrage. Both were students abroad at the time they met. They were among the hundred women arrested for attempting to present petitions for suffrage to Parliament. This was the first time either of them had participated in a demonstration, but from then on they worked together in England and Scotland, organizing, speaking, heckling members of the government, campaigning at by-elections, going to Holloway Prison together, where they joined the English women on hunger strike. Miss Burns remained organizing in Scotland, while Miss Paul was obliged to return to America after serious illness following a thirty-day period of imprisonment, 
during all of which time she was forcibly fed. Miss Burns and she did not meet again until 1913, three years having intervened, when they undertook the national work on Congress. Throughout the entire campaign, Miss Burns and Miss Paul counseled with one another on every point of any importance. This combination of the cool strategist and passionate rebel, each sharing some of the attributes of the other, has been a complete and unsurpassed leadership. You have now been introduced, most inadequately, to Lucy Burns, who was to start the fight inside the prison. She had no sooner begun to organize her comrades for protest than the officials sensed a plot, and removed her at once to solitary confinement. But they were too late. Taking the leader only hastened the rebellion. A forlorn piece of paper was discovered, on which was written their initial demand. It was then passed from prisoner to prisoner through holes in the wall surrounding leaden pipes, until a finished document had been perfected and signed by all the prisoners. This historic document, historic because it represents the first organized group action ever made in America to establish the status of political prisoners, said, To the Commissioners of the District of Columbia, As political prisoners, we, the undersigned, refuse to work while in prison. We have taken this stand as a matter of principle after careful consideration, and from it we shall not recede. This action is a necessary protest against an unjust sentence. In reminding President Wilson of his pre-election promises toward woman suffrage, we were exercising the right of peaceful petition, guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States, which declares peaceful picketing is legal in the District of Columbia. That we are unjustly sentenced has been well recognized. When President Wilson pardoned the first group of suffragists who had been given sixty days in the workhouse, and again when Judge Maloney suspended sentence for the last group of picketers. We wish to point out the inconsistency and injustice of our sentences. Some of us have been given sixty days, a later group thirty days, and another group given a suspended sentence for exactly the same action. Conscious, therefore, of having acted in accordance with the highest standards of citizenship, we ask the commissioners of the district to grant us the rights due political prisoners. We ask that we no longer be segregated and confined under locks and bars in small groups, but permitted to see each other, and that Miss Lucy Burns, who is in full sympathy with this letter, be released from solitary confinement in another building and given back to us. We ask exemption from prison work, that our legal right to consult counsel be recognized, to have food sent to us from outside, to supply ourselves with writing material for as much correspondence as we may need, to receive books, letters, newspapers, our relatives, and friends. Our united demand for political treatment has been delayed because on entering the workhouse we found conditions so very bad that before we could ask that the suffragists be treated as political prisoners, it was necessary to make a stand for the ordinary rights of human beings for all the inmates. Although this has not been accomplished, we now wish to bring the important question of the status of political prisoners to the attention of the commissioners, who, we are informed, have full authority to make what regulations they please for the district prison and workhouse. The commissioners are requested to send us a written reply so that we may be sure this protest has reached them. Signed by Mary Windsor, Lucy Branham, Ernestine Hara, Hilda Blumberg, Maud Malone, Pauline F. Adams, Eleanor A. Kalnan, 
Edith Eng, Annie Arneal, Dorothy J. Bartlett, Margaret Fotheringham. The commissioner's only answer to this was a hasty transfer of the signers and the leader, Miss Burns, to the district jail, where they were put in solitary confinement. The women were not only refused the privileges asked, but were denied some of the usual privileges allowed to ordinary criminals. Generous publicity was given to these reasonable demands, and a surprisingly widespread protest followed the official denial of them. Scores of committees went to the district commissioners. Telegrams backing up the women's demand again poured in upon all responsible administrators from President Wilson down. Not even foreign diplomats escaped protest or appeal. Miss Vera Samaradin sent to the Russian ambassador the following touching letter concerning her sister, which is translated from the Russian. The Russian Ambassador, Washington, D.C. Excellency, I am appealing to you to help a young Russian girl imprisoned in the workhouse near Washington. Her name is Nina Samaradin. I have just come from one of the two monthly visits I am allowed to make her as a member of her family. The severity and cruelty of the treatment she is receiving at Akakwan are so much greater than she would have to suffer in Russia for the simple political offense she is accused of having committed, that I hope you will be able to intercede with the officials of this country for her. Her offense, aside from the fact that she infringed no law nor disturbed the peace, had only a political aim, and was proved to be political by the words of the judge who sentenced her, for he declared that because of the innocent inscription on her banner he would make her sentence light. Since her imprisonment, she has been forced to wear the dress of a criminal, which she would not in Russia. She has had to eat only the coarse and unpalatable food served the criminal inmates, and has not been allowed, as she would in Russia, to have other food brought to her. Nor has she, as she would be there, been under the daily care of a physician. She is not permitted to write letters, nor to have free access to books and other implements of study. Nina Samaradin has visibly lost in weight and strength since her imprisonment, and she has a constant headache from hunger. Her motive in holding the banner by the White House, I feel, cannot but appeal to you, Excellency, for she says it was the knowledge that her family were fighting in Russia in this great war for democracy, and that she was cut off from the serving with them that made her desire to do what she could to help the women of this nation achieve the freedom her own people have. Will you, if it is within your power, attempt to have her recognized as a political prisoner, and relieve the severity of the treatment she is receiving for obeying this impulse born of her love of liberty and the dictates of her conscience? I have, Excellency, the honor to be, respectfully your countrywoman, signed, Vera Samaradin, Baltimore, Maryland. Another Russian, Maria Morovsky, author and poet, who had herself been imprisoned in Tsarist Russia, who was touring America at the time of this controversy, expressed her surprise that our suffrage prisoners should be treated as common criminals. She wrote, Footnote, reprinted from the suffragist, February 8, 1919. End of footnote. I have been twice in the Russian prison. Life in the solitary cell was not sweet, but I can assure you it was better than that which American women suffragists must bear. We were permitted to read and write. We wore our own clothes. We were not forced to mix with the criminals. We did no work. 
Only a few women exiled to Siberia for extremely serious political crimes were compelled to work. And our guardians and even judges respected us. They felt we were victims, because we struggled for liberty. The commissioners, who bade to bear the responsibility of an answer to these protests, and to the demand of the prisoners, contended to all alike that political prisoners did not exist. "'We shall be happy to establish a precedent,' said the women. "'But in America,' stammered the commissioners, "'there is no need for such a thing as political prisoners. "'The very fact that we can be sentenced to such long terms for a political offense "'shows that there does exist, in fact, "'a group of people who have come into conflict with state power "'for dissenting from the prevailing political system,' "'our representatives answered. "'We cited definitions of political offenses "'by eminent criminologists,' Penologists, sociologists, statesmen, and historians. We declared that all authorities on political crime sustained our contention that we clearly came under the category of political, if any, crime. We pointed as proof to James Bryce, Joyce Sigerson, Maurice Parmalee, and even to Clemenceau, who defined the distinction between political offenses and common law crimes thus. Theoretically, a crime committed in the interest of the criminal is a common law crime, while an offense committed in the public interest is a political crime. Footnote. Speech before the French Chamber of Deputies, May 16, 1876, advocating amnesty for those who participated in the Commune of 1871. From the Annales de la Chambre des Disputes, 1876, Volume 2, Pages 44 to 48. End of footnote. We called to their attention the established custom of special treatment of political prisoners in Russia, France, Italy, and even Turkey. We told them that as early as 1872, the International Prison Congress meeting in London recommended a distinction in the treatment of political and common law criminals, and the resolution of recommendation was agreed upon by the representatives of all the powers of Europe and America, with the tacit concurrence of British and Irish officials. Footnote. Segerson, Political Prisoners at Home and Abroad, page 10. End of footnote. Mr. John Corrin, International Prison Commissioner, footnote, appointed and sponsored by the Department of State as delegate to the International Prison Congress, end of footnote, for the United States, was throughout this agitation making a study of this very problem. As chairman of a special committee of the American Prison Association, empowered to investigate the problem of political prisoners for America, he made a report at the annual meeting of the American Prison Association in New York, October 1919, entitled, The Political Offenders and Their Status in Prison. Footnote. Mr. Corrin discusses the political offender from the penological, not the social point of view. End of footnote. In which he says, The political offender must be measured by a different rule, and is a creature of extraordinary and temporary conditions. There are times in which the tactics used in the pursuit of political recognition may result in a technical violation of the law for which imprisonment ensues, as witness the suffragist cases in Washington. These militants were completely out of place in a workhouse. They could not be made to submit to discipline fashioned to meet the needs of the derelicts of society, and... They therefore destroyed it for the entire institution. 
There was no doubt in the official mind but that our claim was just. But the administration would not grant this demand, as such, of political prisoners. It must continue to persuade public opinion that our offense was not of a political nature, that it was nothing more than unpleasant and unfortunate riotous conduct in the capital. The legend of a few slightly mad women seeking notoriety must be sustained. Our demand was never granted, but it was kept up until the last imprisonment, and was soon reinforced by additional protest tactics. Our suffrage prisoners, however, made an important contribution toward establishing this reform which others will consummate. They were the first in America to organize and sustain this demand over a long period of time. In America we maintain a most backward policy in dealing with political prisoners. We have neither regulation nor precedent for special treatment of them, nor have we official flexibility. This controversy was at its height in the press and in the public mind when President Wilson sent the following message through a New York state suffrage leader on behalf of the approaching New York referendum on state woman suffrage. May I not express to you my very deep interest in the campaign in New York for the adoption of woman suffrage, and may I not say that I hope no voter will be influenced in his decision with regard to the great matter by anything the so-called pickets may have done here in Washington. However justly they may have laid themselves open to serious criticism, their action represents, I am sure, so small a fraction of the women of the country who are urging the adoption of woman suffrage that it would be most unfair and argue a narrow view to allow their actions to prejudice the cause itself. I am very anxious to see the great state of New York set a great example in this matter. This statement showed a political appreciation of the growing power of the movement. Also, it would be difficult to prove that the small fraction had not shown political wisdom in injecting into the campaign the embarrassment of a controversy which was followed by the above statement of the President. In the meantime, he continued to imprison in Washington the so-called pickets, whom he hoped would not influence the decision of the men voters of New York. It will be remembered in passing that the New York voters adopted suffrage at this time, although they had rejected it two years earlier. If the voters of New York were influenced at all by the so-called pickets, could even President Wilson himself satisfactorily prove that it had been an adverse influence? Chapter 10 The Hunger Strike, A Weapon When the administration refused to grant the demand of the prisoners, and of that portion of the public which supported them for the rights of political prisoners, it was decided to resort to the ultimate protest weapon inside prison. A hunger strike was undertaken, not only to reinforce the verbal demand for the rights of political prisoners, but also as a final protest against unjust imprisonment and increasingly long sentences. This brought the administration face to face with a more acute embarrassment. They had to choose between more stubborn resistance and capitulation. They continued for a while longer on the former path. Little is known in this country about the weapon of the hunger strike, and so at first it aroused tremendous indignation. "'Let them starve to death,' said the thoughtless one who did not perceive that it was the very thing a political administration could least afford to do. "'Mad fanatics,' said a kindlier critic. The general opinion was that the hunger strike was foolish. 
few people realize that this resort to the refusal of food is almost as old as civilization. It has always represented a passionate desire to achieve an end. There is not time to go into the religious use of it, which would also be pertinent, but I will cite a few instances which have tragic and amusing likenesses to the suffrage hunger strike. According to the Brayan Law, footnote, Joyce, A Social History of Ancient Ireland, Volume 1, Chapter 8, end of footnote, which was the code of ancient Ireland by which justice was administered under ancient Irish monarchs from the earliest record to the 17th century, it became the duty of an injured person, when all else failed, to inflict punishment directly for wrong done. The plaintiff fasted on the defendant. He went to the house of the defendant and sat upon his doorstep, remaining there without food to force the payment of a debt, for example. The debtor was compelled by the weight of custom and public opinion not to let the plaintiff die at his door, and yielded. Or, if he did not yield, he was practically outlawed by the community to the point of being driven away. A man who refused to abide by the custom not only incurred personal danger, but lost all character. If resistance to this form of protest was resorted to, it had to take the form of a counterfast. If the victim of such a protest thought himself being unjustly coerced, he might fast in opposition, to mitigate or avert the evil. Fasting on a man was also a mode of compelling action of another sort. St. Patrick fasted against King Trian to compel him to have compassion on his, Trian's, slaves. Footnote. Tripartite Life of St. Patrick, 177. End of footnote. He also fasted against a heretical city to compel it to become orthodox. He fasted against the pagan king, Loguire, to constrain him to his will. This form of hunger strike was further used under the Brayan law as compulsion to obtain a request. For example, the Leinstermen on one occasion fasted on St. Columcill till they obtained from him the promise that an extern king should never prevail against them. It is interesting to note that this form of direct action was adopted because there was no legislative machinery to enforce justice. These laws were merely a collection of customed attaining the force of law by long usage, by hereditary habit, and by public opinion. Our resort to this weapon grew out of the same situation. The legislative machinery, while empowered to give us redress, failed to function, and so we adopted the fast. The institution of fasting on a debtor still exists in the East. It is called by the Hindus, sitting Daharna. The hunger strike was continuously used in Russia by prisoners to obtain more humane practices toward them. Kropotkin, footnote, see In Russian and French Prisons, P. Kropotkin, end of footnote, cites an instance in which women prisoners hunger struck to get their babies back. If a child was born to a woman during her imprisonment, the babe was immediately taken from her and not returned. Mothers struck and got their babies returned to them. He cites another successful example in Rarkoff Prison in 1878, when six prisoners resolved to hunger strike to death if necessary to win two things, to be allowed exercise and to have the sick prisoners taken out of chains. 
There are innumerable instances of hunger strikes, even to death, in Russian prison history. But more often the demands of the strikers were won. Brzezkovsky Footnote For Russia's Freedom by Ernest Poole An Interview with Brzezkovsky End of footnote Tells of a strike by seventeen women against outrage, which elicited the desired promises from the warden. As early as 1877, members of the Land and Liberty Societies, imprisoned for peaceful and educational propaganda in the Schlossberg Fortress for Political Prisoners, hunger-struck against inhuman prison conditions and frightful brutalities, and won their points. During the suffrage campaign in England, this weapon was used for the double purpose of forcing the release of imprisoned militant suffragettes and of compelling the British government to act. Among the demonstrations was a revival of the ancient Irish custom by Sylvia Pankhurst, who, in addition to her hunger strikes within prison, fasted on the doorstep of Premier Asquith to compel him to see a deputation of women on the granting of suffrage to English women. She won. Irish prisoners have revived the hunger strike to compel either release or trial of untried prisoners, and have won. As I write, almost a hundred Irish prisoners detained by England for alleged nationalist activities, but not brought to trial, hunger-struck to freedom. As a direct result of this specific hunger-strike, England has promised a renovation of her practices in dealing with Irish rebels. And so it was, that when we came to the adoption of this accelerating tactic, we had behind us more precedents for winning our point than for losing. We were strong in the knowledge that we could fast on President Wilson and his powerful administration, and compel him to act, or fast back. Among the prisoners, who with Alice Paul led the hunger strike, was a very picturesque figure, Rose Winslow, Ruzo Winklowska, of New York, whose parents had brought her in infancy from Poland to become a citizen of free America. At eleven she was put at a loom in a Pennsylvania mill, where she wove hosiery for fourteen hours a day, until tuberculosis claimed her at nineteen. A poet by nature, she developed her mind to the full in spite of these disadvantages, and when she was forced to abandon her loom, she became an organizer for the Consumers League, and later a vivid and eloquent power in the suffrage movement. Her group preceded Miss Paul's by about a week in prison. These vivid sketches of Rose Winslow's impressions while in the prison hospital were written on tiny scraps of paper and smuggled out to us and to her husband during her imprisonment. I reprint them in their original form, with cuts but no editing. If this thing is necessary, we will naturally go through with it. Force is so stupid a weapon. I feel so happy doing my bit for decency for our war, which is, after all, real and fundamental. The women are all so magnificent, so beautiful. Alice Paul is as thin as ever, pale and large-eyed. We have been in solitary for five weeks. There is nothing to tell but that the days go by somehow. I have felt quite feeble the last few days, faint, so that I could hardly get my hair brushed, my arms ached so. "'but to-day I am well again.' "'Alice Paul and I talk back and forth, "'though we are at opposite ends of the building, "'and a hall door also shuts us apart. "'But occasionally thrills. "'We escape from behind our iron-barred doors and visit. 
great laughter and rejoicing. To her husband? My fainting probably means nothing, except that I am not strong after these weeks. I know you won't be alarmed. I told about a syphilitic colored woman with one leg. The other one cut off, having rotted so that it was alive with maggots when she came in. The remaining one is now getting as bad. They are so short of nurses that a little colored girl of twelve, who is here waiting to have her tonsils removed, waits on her. This child and two others share a ward with a syphilitic child of three or four years, whose mother refused to have it at home. It makes you absolutely ill to see it. I am going to break all three windows as a protest against their confining Alice Paul with these. Dr. Gannon is chief of a hospital. Yet Alice Paul and I found we had been taking baths in one of the tubs here, in which this syphilitic child, an incurable, who has his eyes bandaged all the time, is also bathed. He has been here a year. Into the room where he lives came yesterday two children to be operated on for tonsillitis. They also bathed in the same tub. The syphilitic woman has been in that room seven months. Cheerful mixing, isn't it? The place is alive with roaches crawling all over the walls everywhere. I found one in my bed the other day. There is great excitement about my two syphilitics. Each nurse is being asked whether she told me. So, as in all institutions where an unsanitary fact is made public, no effort is made to make the wrong itself right. All hands fall to to find the culprit who made it known, and he is punished. Alice Paul is in the psychopathic ward. She dreaded forcible feeding frightfully, and I hate to think how she must be feeling. I had a nervous time of it, gasping a long time afterward, and my stomach rejecting during the process. I spent a bad, restless night, but otherwise I am all right. The poor soul who fed me got liberally besprinkled during the process. I heard myself making the most hideous sounds. One feels so forsaken when one lies prone and people shove a pipe down one's stomach. This morning, but for an outstanding tiredness, I am all right. I am waiting to see what happens when the President realizes that brutal bullying isn't quite a statesmanlike method for settling a demand for justice at home. At least, if men are supine enough to endure, women, to their eternal glory, are not. They took down the boarding from Alice Paul's window yesterday, I heard. It is so delicious about Alice and me. Over in the jail a rumor began that I was considered insane and would be examined. Then came Dr. White and said he had come to see the thyroid case. When they left we argued about the matter, neither of us knowing which was considered suspicious. She insisted it was she, and as it happened she was right. Imagine anyone thinking Alice Paul needed to be under observation. The thick-headed idiots. Yesterday was a bad day for me in feeding. I was vomiting continually during the process. The tube has developed an irritation somewhere that is painful. Never was there a sentence like ours for such an offense as ours, even in England. Footnote. Sentence of seven months for obstructing traffic. End of footnote. No woman ever got it over there, even for tearing down buildings. And during all that agitation, we were busy saying that never would such things happen in the United States. The men told us they would not endure such frightfulness. 
Mary Beard and Helen Todd were allowed to stay only a minute, and I cried like a fool. I am getting over that habit, I think. I fainted again last night. I just fell flop over in the bathroom where I was washing my hands, and was led to bed when I recovered by a nurse. I lost consciousness just as I got there again. I felt horribly faint until twelve o'clock, then fell asleep for a while. I was getting frantic because you seemed to think Alice was with me in the hospital. She was in the psychopathic ward. The same doctor feeds us both and told me. Don't let them tell you we take this well. Miss Paul vomits much. I do too, except when I'm not nervous, as I have been every time against my will. I try to be less feeble-minded. It's the nervous reaction, and I can't control it much. I don't imagine bathing one's food in tears very good for one. We think of the coming feeding all day. It is horrible. The doctor thinks I take it well. I hate the thought of Alice Paul and the others if I take it well. We still get no mail. We are insubordinate. It's strange, isn't it? If you ask for food fit to eat as we did, you are insubordinate. And if you refuse food, you are insubordinate. Amusing. I am really all right. If this continues very long, I perhaps won't be. I am interested to see how long our so-called splendid American men will stand for this form of discipline. All news cheers one marvelously because it is hard to feel anything but a bit desolate and forgotten here in this place. All the officers here know we are making this hunger strike, that women fighting for liberty may be considered political prisoners. We have told them. God knows we don't want other women ever to have to do this over again. There have been sporadic and isolated cases of hunger strikes in this country, but to my knowledge ours was the first to be organized and sustained over a long period of time. We shall see in subsequent chapters how effective this weapon was. End of section 11 Recording by Patty Cunningham